Welcome to the Kids Corner, where we explore sensory processing, development, and play with purpose as it pertains to eating, sleeping, playing, and growing. On this podcast, we will educate you on the lesser-known topics, give practical tips and tricks to help elevate your practice, and provide resources for families and caregivers. We are your hosts. I'm Bean, the co-founder of ReU and a recovering paraplegic. And I'm Nancy, a kinesiologist specializing in pediatrics, facilitating learning and development through movement and play therapies. Today we're talking to Jen Stewart. So welcome, Jen. Hi, so happy to be here. So a little short introduction about Jen. She is a mom and an Annette Benil Method practitioner. So today we're talking about ABM. So I know a lot of parents have questions about what ABM is and different types of therapies. So today we're going to address that. So Jen is out of Chilliwack, BC, so British Columbia, up here in Canada. She runs both in-person and online sessions, as we have all had to adapt to the COVID and all the restrictions. So she is very passionate about sharing her knowledge about ABM and to help improve the lives of others. Learn to move using the power of your brain. So welcome, Jen. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm super excited to share what the Annette Vanille Method is all about and how it can help kids with special needs. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and who you are, what you do and your background? Yeah, sure. So first of all, I'm a mom of three. And I used to be in my old life, I used to be a geologist. But then when my second daughter was born with a rare genetic disorder, everything changes. So after you have kids, everything changes. And after you have a diagnosis, everything really changes. So that kind of started the journey for me to find the best path for me to support my daughter to reach her potential. So after a bumpy start with her birth, we didn't have a diagnosis then. So she was about six months old and she wasn't reaching her her milestones. So we were referred to a pediatric PT. Now we happened to live in Northern Saskatchewan at the time, (laughs) a very remote section of Canada. And the only PT in that area was on mat leave for nine months. So I was at home in a very remote area with this child that I knew needed help. She wasn't meeting any milestones. She basically just laid on the floor uh, still. And I didn't know what to do. So I started the old Google searching how I could help her because I realized very quickly that there, there just wasn't the resources, professional resources in the area to help me. When she was a year old, we did finally get a diagnosis from the geneticist. She has a rare, a very rare genetic disorder. She's at the time, she was only one uh, in the entire world with it. Uh, now there's about seven in the databases. So we were basically told that her developmental stages, they had no idea how she would develop. Completely unknown. And we had a lovely geneticist who told me that it's my job as a parent to help her reach her own unique potential, whatever that might be. And that's always really stuck with me, how to help her reach her own potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she was globally delayed. So she had gross motor skills, fine motor skill delayed. She was intellectually delayed. She was nonverbal. And he never said you have to help her have a stronger core or teach her how to do X, Y, Z. He said, you have to help her reach her potential, whatever Mm -hmm. that may be. So that started my whole mindset shift of the fixing mentality to connecting with her Mm -hmm. and my search for 
the modalities that are based on connection and creating opportunities for learning instead of the mechanically fixing something because she has a genetic disorder. You can't fix that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really rare to find somebody, I think, in the medical profession that has that outlook. So like, that's really awesome to hear that. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I was actually quite surprised by it because you hear these horror stories of, you know, professionals, you know, limiting their children. And of course, I've seen that since, but it was actually a, it was really nice to have that as a start to the journey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a little bit more story into how you got into ABM then? So I'm sure this kind of started your journey, but how, when did you find out about ABM? Yeah, so this was, my daughter's 12 now, so that was 12 years ago when there was one single mommy blog talking about ABM. It really wasn't, you know, super well known on the internet yet. And I just kind of kept stumbling across it on the internet and I decided, oh, I'm going to try it. So the only practitioner in Canada at the time was in Toronto. So I flew to Toronto with my daughter. And the very first lesson, I knew it was different. There was a connection there and a respect from the practitioner that I just had never seen with any other professional. Mm-hmm. My daughter, after that one lesson, we stayed there for a week, but after the very first lesson, my daughter was more engaged. She had better balance. She was more coordinated. Um, she slept better that night. <laughs> Side bonus. Mm-hmm. And I just knew that I wanted to learn how to do that. I wanted to learn how to connect with her and engage with her and draw her out of herself, right? Yeah. Wow. Very cool. So then you started your journey into ABM. So where did you go train and how long did it take you? Yeah, so I probably for about five years, I four or five years, I ended up because there were so few practitioners at that time, I ended up um, bringing in practitioners to my community. So that's kind of how it started. So I would gather up families and we would fly in a practitioner. And it was an amazing opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. But I realized this is a lifelong process. Um, I'm going to be helping my daughter reach her potential for, you know, the rest of her life. I want her to be a really good learner. So Mm -hmm. why don't I take the training? And when I looked into the training, it was, it was just so funny. When I looked into the training, I realized that the training center was 20 minutes from my brother's house down in San Francisco. So (laughs) it kind of was like all the stars aligned and that's, that's what happened. So I went down there, I think I started the training in 2013 and then graduated 2015. It was the very last time Anat had all in-person training. So now Anat's moved quite a bit. Most of the training segments are online now, obviously Mm -hmm. because of COVID too. So, so that was what I did for two years. I flew down there back and forth and got the training and was able to bring ABM back to the community, back to Canada. That's incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. So how long did that process take you to become fully like certified in ABM? So when I took the training, the full process was two years. It was broken down into, there's basic training and then training for the kids. There's 14 segments of nine days each. Every two months, I think we went down about. Now Mm -hmm. it's more online. I think she's narrowed it down to about a year and a half now for Mm -hmm. for the training. So yeah, there's still about 10 day segments that you do intensively and then you have a you know a couple weeks break and then you do another 10 days yeah yeah 
Yeah, so it's pretty in-depth, and it's not just like a weekend course you go and take. Oh, goodness, no. <laughs> no, no. it was uh, many, many hours of, uh, yeah, it was very intense, yeah. The nine days down there was very intense, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so do you want to dive into a little bit of the origins of ABM and the whole backstory behind Annette and the whole method? Yeah, so Annette Beniel, the method kind of developed from her background of she studied under somebody called Moshe Feldenkrais. And Moshe Feldenkrais created the Feldenkrais method, which started to get popular in the 80s. And that's uh, especially with the yoga crowd, you might have heard of it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, at that time, he was getting just as his method was kind of taking off the Feldenkrais method, he was elderly. And Annette was actually his traveling companion. And uh, she also taught some of his trainings with him. So she was kind of his right hand man for quite a while. And she was very young. She was in her 20s. And he would start giving her the children to work on. So she kind of got taught underneath Feldenkrais and started taking on more and more kids. And she very quickly realized that there's a section of the method that she wanted to draw out a little bit more about working with the brain, connecting to the brain. So it wasn't more about mechanically moving the child. It was more about connection with the brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And then, so she did most of her work, I understand, not in the United States. It was over, was it in Israel? Yeah, so there, uh, Moshe was an immigrant from, I believe it was Poland, to Israel. So that's where they kind of knew each other. He was quite a big figure in Israel. He worked with Madame Curie in her lab, actually. He was a physicist. He was married to a doctor. So he had this really rich background to draw upon. And he was actually really into judo, the martial arts, and he brought judo to France as well. So he was really into kind of movement and physics and Hmm. his wife's background of a doctor. So, you know, he brought kind of all that together in this method of how, how to move your body through gravity using the least amount of effort. Very cool. And so do you know when about ABM actually like became a method when Annette Benil kind of branched off? Right. So, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the dates were exactly. I think it was in the 90s. It would have had to have been in the 90s, I believe, mm-hmm. that she decided that her method was unique enough to have its own unique name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's kind of the backstory to ABM. So can we talk a little bit about like, what is ABM? Right. Okay. So... <laughs> I'm giggling because it encompasses so much. It's very hard to narrow it down to one sentence because it really is an experiential learning modality. So it's a movement-based learning modality. And we primarily use slow, gentle movement to access the brain's ability to change. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a very good, succinct uh, explanation, I think, of ABM. That was was awesome. Nailed it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So can we talk a little bit about how does ABM work? So we talked about this learning and experiential and movement. So how does ABM help kids learn? Great question. So neuroplasticity is, is real. Your brain can change at any stage in your life. And ABM uses gentle movements to access neuroplasticity. So and that's come up with these nine essentials to kind of accelerate your brain's ability to change your brain's ability to learn things. And we just happen to use kind of movement to tap into that to access that. So 
There's some interesting other modalities out there. If you've ever read The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Doidge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He goes into, you know, different modalities that can access your brain. So there's, you know, you can listen to something. They have uh, the tongue sensor thing going on. Uh, we happen to use through the Anat method, we use slow, gentle movement. Mm-hmm. No, that's very cool. A couple things before we dive into some of the nine essentials. Can we talk about the shift from the fixing paradigm? So moving away from and beyond that fixing paradigm. Can we talk about what the fixing paradigm is and what ABM's shift is? Right. So I think traditionally we've kind of thought of the human body as a mechanical thing, right? We're made out of muscles and bones and if something's broken, you can go in there and mechanically fix each body part. But when you're talking about a brain injury or a genetic disorder, the mechanical fixing method doesn't really work. And you're also talking about a dynamic holistic being, right? We're more than just, you know, one thing. We're more than just a mechanical object, right? So ABM sees the whole child as dynamic and unique. We're a learning modality. So we're focused on how to create opportunities to learn, how to learn to move our bodies through space, Mm -hmm. how to move our bodies through gravity with the least amount of effort. So humans, we learn our own experience. So, you know, what is our experience as we move through life? What is our experience when we're with our parents? What is our experience when we were with our therapist that we're learning our experience? We're not necessarily learning what the parent or the therapist wants us to learn, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense, right? Mm -hmm. So this connection piece, being very mindful to create the opportunities for our kids to to learn their own experience, to flourish in their own experience, right? So we're setting up opportunities for them to flourish in their own experiences. That's awesome. I know I've read, so Annette Benil has a book called Kids Beyond Limits. And like her whole second chapter is about that transition from fixing to connecting. And it's really eye-opening, I think, for any parent or even therapist to just read through that book just to get a greater understanding of the potential. And you're not fixing the child because there's nothing to fix. The child is who they are and you're helping them connect and, like you say, reach their potential. Yeah, exactly. First of all, it's a fantastic book. It's one of my favorite books and it's actually valid for parenting. It's a great parenting book, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So we're learning our experience and there's such a difference in our experience when somebody is doing something to you, there's an Mm -hmm. experience versus when somebody is doing something with you or mm-hmm. you're doing something through your own self-agency, that's a very different experience. So yeah. that's what really good therapists and teachers and parents do this naturally. You know, they connect with their child, they engage with their child, they're giving the experience with their child, not to their child, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to think of the analogy of laughing at you versus laughing with you. Laughing at you doesn't feel good, but laughing with you, everybody's enjoying it and being happy. Yeah, Yeah. right. Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about who can benefit from ABM. Well, we like to joke that anybody with a brain can benefit (laughs) from from ABM because, you know, we are learning modality. So anybody who wants to learn anything can benefit from ABM. You know, we mostly work with kids who have brain injury, with cerebral palsy, with autism, genetic disorders, Down syndrome, et cetera, et cetera, like that. Mm -hmm. 
And it's not just limited to kids, it's adults who have had a stroke, um, adults with Parkinson's, all of that kind of stuff too. So anybody with a brain can have the ability to learn to upgrade their movement patterns. You know, I still get on the floor and roll around and I'm constantly improving how I move through the world as well, right? So it's available for everybody. Mm-hmm. And is there such thing as too young? No, I, I don't think so. I think the younger actually the, is, is the better, right? Because that's when the, the brain ha- is more available for change. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Can you dive into what an ABM session looks like? I know you said it was like, there's slow, guided, gentle movement kind of thing. So what would a session look like if I'm like a parent coming in? Can you just kind of walk, walk me from the beginning to the end of the session kind of thing? Yeah. So before I became a practitioner, I was always like, what are they doing with my kid? I can barely see anything happening. So what usually happens is the the child will will be on a table, like a massage table, a large massage table kind of thing usually works best. Sometimes we do just do it on the floor. It depends on the situation. But yeah, it's hands on. So the practitioner will have the hands on the children and slowly, gently moving limbs around and touching different parts, ribs and feet and and heads, etc. It's very, very subtle. Sometimes I before I became a practitioner, I wondered, yeah, what are they doing? I can't even see barely any movement. It's so interesting to watch the children. So the children are they have this internal awareness of what is happening. So they get this really soft internal gaze. They're paying attention to how their body's moving which is one of the essentials, you know, to create brain change, bringing awareness to how you're moving can accelerate brain change. So that's one of the things that practitioners are doing or and you can do at home as well is using your touch, really gentle, slow touch to wake up the brain. So it's the slow, gentle movement throughout the lesson. Usually lessons are about 30 minutes to 45 minutes long. It really depends where the child is at developmentally of what you'll be doing. So some kids will just lie there and there'll be slow, gentle movements. Other kids will roll around with them, will stand up, will do things like that. But expect your child to be very hungry after and thirsty after. It's really hard brain work. So it's like sitting down and and learning a whole chapter of calculus. You know how exhausted you are after (laughs) really Mm -hmm. intensely focusing for that long. Yeah. Yeah, so the kids are often really hungry and thirsty after. So each session kind of looks different, but just think of it as, I thought of it as quite peaceful, you know, peaceful and engaging my child. Mm -hmm. And then, so I know a lot of parents have heard about ABM intensives. So why do an intensive? Right. So ABM isn't a quick fix. So changing your brain often isn't a quick fix. You can see quite dramatic changes uh, quite fast, but it's not quick fix. So we're creating new movement patterns, different movement patterns. And often those movement patterns, they're brand new, right? So it's a brand new connection in the brain that can get lost quite easily. You need it kind of reinforced a little bit. So that's usually why they do intensives. Like it, it depends on so many different factors, but most practitioners like to work in groups, groups of lessons. So a series of like four to eight lessons over consecutive days. And 
the one lesson will build on the next lesson will build on the next lesson will build on the next lesson. If you have time in between the lessons, like a week of time in between the lessons, then it's just so easy to slip back into the old habitual movement patterns. And if you have a child with spasticity, you know, spasticity is just a hard, it's a really grooved in pattern, right? So you'll see better results if you group your lessons together. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's good information to know. And now for the parents who are interested in how soon should I expect to see changes? Obviously, every child's totally unique. But as a therapist, how do you respond to that? Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely encourage like your first time not to just do one lesson, but do, do at least two or three lessons, you know, in a row in a day, or, you know, over the course of uh, two to three days. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you should see changes within that first set of lessons. The changes might not be super obvious. They'll probably look like better balance, better coordination, uh, better sleep, less spasticity. They could be quite subtle changes in how your child moves or, or engages with the world. But the interesting part is like you'll do an intensive group of lessons and then you go home for a week and you'll often still see changes happening over that week as they go home and they're in their everyday life and say they have less spasticity over those couple days and they go home and they have less spasticity all of a sudden they kind of jump in their milestones right like they have an increase Mm -hmm. in changes at home Mm -hmm. for the, the next week or so and then I would say you'll see kind of the new changes slowing down and then there'll be kind of a plateau and then you want to go jump in and see your local practitioner when you start to see there'll be kind of a regression period as well right as um, as a, as they slip back into old patterns there can be a regression so that's usually you know week four or five kind of thing you, you want to jump back and see your local practitioner Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a learning effect and it has definite carryover, but there's, you know, as, as it is the child's growing and learning and changing, you know, I guess ABM needs to be something that's kind of that keep going back kind of thing. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, it's, it's not the quick fix. It's not a mechanical fix. It's learning. Your, your child is learning new skills. And mm-hmm. so those new skills, you know, hopefully they're learning new skills throughout your entire life, right? Mm-hmm. I was just going to ask, like, do you give the parents homework to do as well that they can continue on when their child plateaus? Yeah, well, it depends, you know, on the practitioner and the families, you know, every family is unique of how often they can come, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But there's definitely things you can do at home. Those would fall more into those nine nine essentials. So just thinking of all of your everyday activities that you do at home, your dressing, your feeding, your daily care things with your with your child, how can you create opportunity for your child to learn in those moments and you can do it quite easily it's quite interesting how fast you can create learning moments just by slowing things down just by getting your child to bring awareness to how they're moving in the space how, you know where's their arm where's their leg when you put your mm-hmm. shoe on right yeah there's just there's a ton of ways you can incorporate it at home. It's totally changed the way I parent. If you're already into respectful parenting and gentle parenting, it basically follows the same guidelines of really creating the space for your child to explore. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm, cool. Can we dive into what are the nine essentials? We've talked about them and hinted at them a whole bunch throughout this episode. Can we dive into them a little bit more now? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's great because this is like the practical part of it. So, and that's come up with these nine essentials and they've been proven to increase your brain's ability to change. So when you use these nine essentials, it's a tool that you can use to access your, your child's brain's ability to change. So I'll list them out maybe, and then maybe we'll dive into a few. So Sure, sounds good. Yeah, so there's movement with attention, going slow, variation, subtlety, enthusiasm, having flexible goals, the learning switch, imagination and dreams, and awareness. Cool. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of them, so... And not to get overwhelmed, I usually I have my favorite top three that I use like every day with my own kids and I use as a practitioner all the time. Uh, I would say the first major one is that you can easily, easily use in your everyday life and see changes right away is slowing things down. So most of us are on repeat habitual patterns. That's what our brains are really, really good at. Our brains are really good at organizing how we move in a habitual pattern so we don't have to expend extra brain energy to figure something out, right? Mm -hmm. So things like brushing your teeth, for, for those of us who can walk and talk, we don't really have to think about it, right? Our brains have automated habitually, you know, those that process, right? Which is great, right? It's very handy that our brains do that. But when we're trying to learn something new, we need to have a different approach, right? And slowing things down gives our brains the chance to notice new opportunities to try new things. Because if you're only going fast, you're going to fall into that habitual pattern that you always do. So slowing down allows, you know, you to explore new movements, something that you've never done before. So, you know, creating that space for your child to learn something new, uh, to explore something new, you can do that just by slowing things down. Now, I like to slow, you know, you can slow things down in so many different ways as a parent. You know, I like slowing things down during getting dressed, putting on the shoes, putting on the coat. Even in your communication, I struggle with this a lot. My daughter is pre-verbal, I guess you could say. She has apraxia, so she does have quite a few words, but it takes her a long time to process what's being said and then coordinate all of what's needed to actually come up with an answer. And I often don't give her enough time to come up with an answer, right? So just slowing down your communication with your child can make a dramatic difference in giving them a chance to to learn something new, you know, and and giving them a chance to build on those skills. Yeah, I think that's something that's really important, because we do live in a very rush, rush, rush lifestyle. And I think that's a really good tip for anybody parent or not, to slow things down and to really pay attention to how you're doing things and why you're doing things that way. That's a really good tip. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. It's one of my favorites. When in doubt, just slow right down. And, you know, there's amazing changes that happen just when parents go home and slow things down. Yeah. It gives your child the chance to engage with you and to connect with you, which can be huge, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay, so that's slow. My other favorite essential is variation. So, you know, adding variation into your habitual routine can really grab the brain's attention. So we're talking about trying to create 
change in the brain, throwing in some variation into your routine really gives you an opportunity to grab your child's brain's attention and try something new, try a new movement, try, you know, whatever, new food, new, new ways to communicate, new whatever it is. So yeah, variation like grabs the brain's attention. And it also provides the brain with a really rich source of quality information. So our brains are busy gathering up sensory information, right? So, you know, whatever we feel, we taste, we see, we touch, all of that is sensory information that's coming into our brains really, really, really fast, right? And our brain's job is to organize that sensory information and turn it into something useful, right? Into a useful action. So if you're only giving your child a repetitive source of information, a repetitive, a repetitive way of doing something, one way of doing something, then your child's missing out on, you know, a broader, richer source of information for their brains to draw on and create something useful. I hope that kind of made sense. Mm-hmm. No, it totally did. Variation is kind of the spice of life, so to speak, right? It, exactly. Yeah, it's the spice of life. So again, I like to use variation with conjunction with slowing down because often we don't even know when we're on repeat of things, right? So slowing down allows you to you know, recognize when you're doing things on repeat and adding in some of that variation. Like we all probably, you know, put the same leg in the same pant leg every time we get dressed. We all, you know, brush our teeth with your dominant hand. We all, you know, just think of the millions of things that you do on repeat every day exactly the same way. And so some of our kids who have, you know, special special needs, like my daughter literally didn't move for the first six months of her life. I'd lie her down on the floor. I would go to the bathroom and come back and she would be exactly where I left her for, you know, six to eight months of her life. So she wasn't getting a rich source of information into her brain. You know, typical babies, I've had, you know, I have two typical babies and the amount of information that they're randomly getting by their little arms flailing and the little legs flailing, they naturally give themselves that sensory input on that sensory information, which their brains can turn into amazing things, right? But my daughter didn't get any of that. So that's partly what, you know, I can do as a practitioner is to give children that quality input or information that they might be missing, the little pieces of information. But you have to have a rich variety of it, or their brain can't piece together the fuller picture. If you only have one type of information, you're going to be missing giant gaps, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of one of my favorite ways. It's easy to do at home, you know, you know, challenge yourself to brush your teeth with your other hand. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, when you're getting your kids dressed and ready for the day, you know, just kind of mix up the order and what you're doing. I find I fall into emotional patterns, right? We all have emotional patterns of how we interact with our kids. So, you know, it's kind of slowing down, uh, saying something different, reacting in a different way, and kind of always looking for those, uh, those moments of opportunity to really grab their brain's attention and create opportunities for something new, you know, trying something new all the time. So a lot of mindfulness, it seems like you just, you know, slowing down, being more aware of what you're doing with the variation, changing up with what you're doing. Because I've used a lot of this in my own recovery with 
putting my shoes on, for example, right? Instead of just using my hands, I try to slow down, give myself patience and try to use my foot, use my legs to put my foot in my shoe because I can do it. But in the hustle and bustle of things, I just don't slow down enough to do it. That's right. Yeah. We end up, you know, just by default, we default into a habitual movement pattern, which is like, you know, super amazing that our brains do that. But when we want to upgrade our brains or upgrade, you know, our movement patterns, we have to try something new, right? Yeah. And be consistent at it too, right? Like you can't just do it once and then expect things to change. No, no, no. Well, yeah, exactly. Like my daughter, you know, literally lied there for eight months of her life. She's not going to get all collect all those missing pieces of information that she missed mm-hmm. through one lesson <laughs> she you know it's a kind of an ongoing process right and you can constantly refine things and upgrade yourself right mm-hmm. yeah and I like that really a lot of the, the two you mentioned kind of incorporate a bunch of the other essentials as well if we think about slowing things down you're moving with more attention mm-hmm. When you're showing in the variation, those the subtle changes, and it doesn't have to be a big variation, right? Instead of you know mm-hmm. picking something up with your index and thumb, then you can pick it up with your you know middle finger and thumb, or something so simple, right? Yeah, it's not complicated. It doesn't have to be complicated at all. Yeah, brains don't learn through complicated things. We learn you know, through simple sensory things. Yeah, keep it simple. I think that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their head around though especially like in this day and age where everything does seem to be more complex and the things that are very simple people kind of they're skeptical about it right because it's not complex yeah yeah I know unfortunate right and we have experts for everything now right so we often default to the experts opinions but it really can be simple I mean think of how you grew up how did you how <laughs> how do you learn to move through this world right N- nobody really showed you how you experimented you played you um, you explored and you were curious you know those are the building blocks of learning right so it's just bringing mm-hmm. that concept into a rehab and therapy Mm-hmm. Awesome. There's just one essential I'd like to touch on a little bit, the learning switch, because I find it very fascinating. And it's cool to see when you actually see it in a child, like right in front of you. Isn't it? Yeah. Okay. I'm glad that you were able to recognize when it's turned on. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the learning switch is like the secret sauce of the whole method, the secret sauce of, of learning. So it is you know, you can use any of the other eight essentials in in a sort of passive way and still increase change and increase your brain's ability to change. So what I mean, like passively, you could still use those eight, eight essentials if you're doing hand over hand with your child. You can still kind of use those eight essentials if you're just, you know, doing repetitions in a gym, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you slow down doing that repetition from at the gym, you'll still be able to increase your muscle mass and your body awareness just by slowing down, even if you're doing something kind of repetitive, right? But when you add in the learning switch, it's like learning on steroids. So you're going to get even better results when you add in this, this learning switch. I mean, it's basically connecting and engaging your your child. So when your child is engaged, when they're connected to themselves, when the brain is interested and engaged, that's when the learning switch is turned on. So you'll see this with an internal gaze of awareness the child has. I see that a lot. I 
table that kind of turn inwards and, and, you know, it looks like they're thinking about something really deep, you know, that's an internal kind of knowledge of, yeah, okay, that learning switches on, they're paying attention, they're engaged with what's happening to them, right? What's happening with them, their experience. And I find like, again, really good teachers and therapists and parents like kind of naturally do that. You kind of naturally know how to engage your child usually and it's just being really aware of how to do that and being purposeful about creating those moments right Mm -hmm. and again being really conscious about moving the activity or the action or the movement from a passive fixing mode from that hand over hand mode Mm -hmm. to finding a way to create a really dynamic learning engaged mode and it, it's tapping into the child's like self agency. So I, I like to talk about self agency quite a bit, and that's kind of what the learning switch is. So it's it's your it's your child's like internal motivation. Like they have to have their own internal motivation too, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think parents are probably even more adept at doing this this essential because you're already naturally connected to your child, right? You already know how to engage your child, you know, how to make them laugh, you know, you know, kind of how to make eye contact with with them, you know, that look in their eye when they're really quiet and internally aware of themselves. So mm-hmm. it's just kind of a matter of creating more of those moments of you slowing down being aware of when, when did you create that? You know, how did you, you know, what was, what were you doing in that moment, and creating more of those moments of turning your child's learning switch on. Yeah, and I'd say that's that's a super big and important thing to, if you don't see it as a parent, to be educated on it. And then when you see it, every time you're going to recognize it, and then you'll start seeing it more often because you're actually actively looking and going through the process with your child together. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Like the very first time I had seen that was actually with the first time I went to Toronto to see um, an ABM practitioner for my daughter. Um, that was the first moment I had ever seen her engaged like I recognized it I had never seen that before I know I know she probably had been but I didn't consciously like I hadn't really consciously seen it and once I had you know I saw it and then I realized what was possible then that was kind of my goal post right you know something that I wanted to reach you know I wanted to do that I wanted to be able to engage her in that way mm-hmm. yeah and I mean the world opens up so much more when they're engaged too right like that's just, you know, all of that learning that can happen when you're engaged. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole secret behind learning, right, is being, <laughs> is being engaged and having that, you know, that self agency to, to get there. And you can do that, you can get there, you can get bring your child to that place by using the other essentials or kind of, you know, will help you get there, right, by slowing down by adding variation by using really subtle, gentle touch. Mm-hmm. All right. And So with other modalities or therapies or interventions, are they paired well with ABM or what's your philosophy on doing multiple, I guess, therapies at a time? Yeah, well, I think when you're very first starting out um, and you've just found ABM, I would actually suggest kind of giving everything else a little bit of a break just so you know what, you know, ABM is possible for your child, you know, what changes are you going to see with ABM, Um, it can kind of get mixed up if there's too many things going on, right. So I, you know, give your give your child like a three week break over, you know, winter holidays or a school break or whatever usually works best for families to just kind of put aside all the other therapies and just try ABM 
for that one week and see what happens, right? Mm-hmm. But there are other modalities that do pair nicely with it. You know, again, it just depends on the diagnosis of your child and the unique situation. But, uh, you know, any modality that's really, really respectful to your child, meeting your child where they're at, engages mm-hmm. your child. Some of them would be like sunrise or floor time. Uh, those are those are kind of popular ones that go go together. Some craniosacral therapy has been helpful for my daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it has the basis in what type of therapist your child's going to see and if they basically respect the nine essentials of what ABM is, more or less. Yes, exactly. Yeah, when you're looking for a type of therapy or a therapist or a teacher or a support worker, that's kind of what you're looking for. Do they naturally use these nine essentials? Do they naturally know how to engage your child? Do they naturally know how to draw your child out into the world and connect with them and with themselves? You know, connect, can your child, can they bring your child home to themselves? Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent uh, tips. (laughs) Yeah, I think that wraps up all of our questions. Yeah. Is there anything else you want people to really know about ABM? Like, is there anything that we haven't said or haven't addressed or some big takeaways? Yeah. Yeah. I think my biggest takeaway, you know, in the journey of being a parent with a child with special needs is, is basically trust your gut. You know, it's okay for parents to keep searching for the right therapist, the right uh, teacher, the right you know, support worker, it's okay to say no to a professional. If something doesn't feel right, you know, it's okay to ask for a second opinion. It's okay to ask for a third opinion. You know, having a daughter with a rare genetic disorder, you know, you really are the expert in your child. You really are. So trust your gut and keep connecting to your child. And you can connect to your child through slow, gentle movements. Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent advice to trust your gut. Yeah, I, yeah, that's the best advice I have. Trust your gut. <laughs> How can people get a hold of you or get in contact with you if they have more questions? Yeah, for sure. So I hang out a lot on Instagram. I am at mindful moves with two L's dot Jen. I also have a Facebook group for parents interested in more about the Anat Benyal method and how to bring it home. That's on Facebook. You can it's uh, mindful moves Anat Benyal method. Yeah, so Facebook and Instagram is kind of where I hang out the most. And if you're still looking for your uh, community and people to hang out with, uh, yeah, I'd love to have you in my community for sure. Okay, cool. Yeah, we'll put your contact information in the description of this podcast so people can get a hold of you. That's great. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for sharing all the information about ABM and your personal journey with your daughter and what brought you into this world. And, you know, honestly, good for you for taking that initiative to become a practitioner, to look for these different modalities that are out there to help your daughter, because there's so many people who wouldn't. And I think it's great that you went outside your comfort zone and did what you had to do for the quality of life for your daughter. Yes, thank you. Yeah, it's for sure been a journey. And once you're in it, you just can't help but want to share it now. I just want to share it with everybody. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you for giving us the opportunity to help you share your information because that's all we want to do too. There's so many great 
therapies and modalities out there that many people don't know about. And we saw the gap in the system of sharing that information. So we wanted to be able to have a platform where we can share all of this pertinent information in one convenient place. (laughs) Yeah, that's so awesome. It's so needed for sure. You're filling a huge gap. So thank you. No problem. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, Jen, so much. We really appreciate you giving your time and your knowledge to us and our listeners. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, we would greatly appreciate if you could subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as this helps us increase our reach. And stay tuned for another episode coming at you in two weeks.